it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome uh, to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. Kicking off another week of the Tom Sumner Program. We got a good one coming up Friday, of course, is the uh, 50th anniversary of... uh, the Watergate burglary. We will pay tribute to that. Coming up Wednesday, of course, every Wednesday we have our political roundtable, and Jan Worth Nelson will be joining the roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. But we're going to have uh, opening up the show on Wednesday. Uh, Donna Brandenburg, who is one of the GOP uh, candidates uh, that got knocked off the August primary. Um, there were five out of the ten in all that were um, booted from the from the primary ballot. We're going to talk to Donna and find out. Several of them are, are going through steps and, and court procedures and all kinds of things to try and get back on the ballot. We'll find out where she's at with that. Tomorrow we're going to be talking uh, about... Um, dinosaurs and strokes and stem cells but today we got a great show in store coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour we're going to talk to attorney turned author um, to talk about his uh, latest legal suspense thriller Belinda his name's Mark Zvonkovic I think I'm saying that right but I'll have him teach me how when he joins me coming up in a couple hours And in the middle of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk about uh, sports and uh, college athletics um, with the author of a book called Surviving the Second Tier. Um, She is M.K. Katie Lever, who is a former Division I athlete herself and currently a doctoral student at the University of Texas. But she is the author of Surviving the Second Tier, and she'll be uh, joining me in the second tier of our three-hour tour today, known as the Tom Sumner Program. But first, we're going to talk about a fascinating uh, new book and story about the impact of... um, Supreme Court's uh, Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954 that ended segregated schooling in the U.S., but it also ended the careers of a generation of highly qualified and credentialed black teachers and principals. And uh, telling the story is um, educator 
and uh, author Leslie Fenwick. She's a professor of education policy, dean emerita of the Howard University School of Education, and dean in residence at the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. And she has uh, a new book. It's called Jim Crow's Pink Slip, The Untold Story of Black Principal and Teacher Leadership. And uh, it just just came out in May of this year, 2022, and uh, it's it's a, a fascinating conversation that I had with her a little earlier this morning. But uh, we'll hear it in full coming up in uh, just a minute or so. Also coming up this week, this is uh, I, I think it's this week. Might be the beginning of next week. Maybe we'll kick off next week with a new book from Na- uh, National Geographic Kids. And Stephanie Warren Drimmer, who um, is an author, uh, a science writer, if you will. But this is uh, The Ultimate Book of the Future, talking about flying cars and super smart, smart robots, smart clothing. I'd never heard of that before. Anyway, we'll be talking with Stephanie about all of those uh, those fun things so lots of reasons to tune in every day for the tom sumner program because we uh boy we get the best guests and and we give them a chance to talk as we will with um leslie fenwick who's coming up here in in just a uh, a few seconds and i hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of the show this morning and uh, be sure and tune in um throughout the week for some some really interesting stuff this this is going to be a good week and welcome back everybody this is the tom sumner program and my guest this hour is a professor of education policy dean emerita of the howard university school of education and dean in residence at the american association of colleges for teacher education and the author of a new book called jim crow's pink slip that exposes the decades-long repercussions of a too little known result of resistance to the Brown v. Board of Education decision. decision. Um, the book, again, is called Jim Crow's Pink Slip, The Untold Story of Black Principal and Teacher Leadership by Leslie T. Fenwick. And Leslie joins me by phone. Good morning, Leslie, and welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom, and thanks for having me on. This is an interesting time for this book to be coming out to talk about resistance to Supreme Court decisions as we're about to see Roe v. Wade get uh, overturned potentially by uh, a new decision of the Supreme Court. Is Is there a chance that 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 Supreme Court decision from 1954 would ever be overturned, or has it been undermined by other decisions along the way? Hmm. I don't know that it would be overturned, per se, and and I, I do think that Brown was a watershed and miraculous decision, and much of whatever... Um, kind of integration that we do see in society is a result of Brown. So 
it did push our nation forward in substantive ways. It said that separate and equal was no longer legal, that that had no place in public schools, and then by extension, other public spaces like transportation, housing. Um, and the decisions that followed Brown reiterated that. One of the messages of the book is that we still haven't fulfilled the promise of Brown. We think of Brown only in terms of integrating student bodies. And we know from the research literature and kind of the social commentary that our schools are more segregated now than ever before. But Brown said two things. It said Brown and the decisions that followed it said you won't achieve integration until you integrate um, you know, relative to schools, faculty, staff, meaning administrators, and students. And we abandoned the part about integrating faculty and staff. And that's been to the detriment of public schools and I think to the detriment of students, too. And, and we've seen a number of, of efforts, implementations, um you know, busing and, and a number of other things, attempts to put black and white kids in the same schools. And some has been more successful than others. Um, but I, I guess my question is, Leslie, to someone who has looked at this very closely, why all the effort and and why is it so difficult for um, integration to happen organically? Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned we turned our attention to looking at integrating students through busing and these other, you know, racial balancing mechanisms. And it was, it was on, it, my book traces the moment that we as Americans turned our attention from integrating faculty and staff and students to just integrating students. Remember, Brown and the decisions that followed said, you won't achieve integration until you have faculty and staff that, are, that, that reflect uh, racial and ethnic diversity. And so we're living with some of this history. You know, most Americans, um, particularly parents of school-aged children, they believe in integration and they believe in a diverse teaching force and want to see diverse leaders of schools and yet we don't see that in American schools and there's a history and a reason for that so when we look at the nation's 3.2 million teachers um, less than 20% are teachers of color if we look at the 93,000 principals, uh, less than 20% are principals of color, and less than uh, 6 or 7% of the nation's 14,000 superintendents are educators of color. And there's a history to this. And for blacks, the history is the black educator pipeline was purposely demolished after Brown because of resistance to the decision. So it wasn't the decision, but it was resistance to the decision that smashed um, the black educator pipeline. How do those those numbers of black teachers and administrators in uh, public schools compare to 
um, the population of African Americans? Yeah, so you know, um, as of about three or four years ago, the public school system became majority student of color and majority the majority of students are coming from families experiencing poverty. So our current public school system is um, populated um, primarily by students of color. And we don't see that kind of uh, racial and ethnic and cultural and linguistic diversity in the teaching force. So the teaching force tends to be somewhat monolithic, but the student population is quite diverse. And we have a lot of research um, in education that shows the benefit of students having exposure to diverse models of intellectual authority. And um, the benefits, the academic benefits and social benefits that accrue to students are particularly marked for um, black and Hispanic or Latinx students. They prevail for white students as well, but when we look at diverse the impact of a diverse teaching population on students, we see that for African American and Hispanic students, they're less likely to be expelled, more likely to graduate high school, more likely to enroll in college, and more likely to um, show gains in reading and math achievement in certain critical uh, grades, fourth grade, eighth grade, and beyond. And newer studies are showing that white students um, believe that black teachers are more caring. And I think we need to kind of unpack why the research is showing that white students report that. But the point here is not about race-matching students. It is about um, looking at the impact, the academic and social benefits that accrue to all students when they have a diverse teaching force and leadership force in the schools. In, in short, what I would say is all students benefit from diverse models of intellectual authority because then what they see is that the world of creativity and knowledge generation and intellectualism and being smart or being, or being a reader, it belongs to all people. When I walk into a math class that's being taught by an African-American male and go into an art class that's being taught by a white female and go into a, an English class that's being taught by an Asian male, what gets communicated to students is that this world of knowledge generation and learning and creativity belongs to all of us in that one group. And the same kind of holds when you see diverse models of leadership in terms of principles. You know, 40% of the nation's, teach, uh, the nation's schools have no teacher of color. And I think that that's shocking because we have a sentiment that says we value integration and we value diversity, but we still have some work to do. More with educator and author Leslie Fenwick straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with educator and author Leslie Fenwick straight ahead. Leslie, did you get some sense for after uh, Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 what happened to the existing teachers and and principals and and uh, administrators from the old system? You know, Tom, when I was doing this research, and I titled the book Jim Crow's Pink Foot, The Untold Story of Black Principal and Teacher Leadership, because I was hearing this myth that after Brown, which occurred in 54, so we think of that kind of as ancient history, depending on our age, but there was resistance to Brown up until the mid to late 70s. So after Brown, um, uh, black schools, all black schools, uh, schools that were racially segregated and served black students were closed. And the principals and teachers who were in those schools were summarily fired, dismissed, and demoted. Now, Brown never said that. Brown, Brown never said close all the black schools, fire all the black teachers and principals, and integrate black students into previously all white schools. Brown said integrate the schools. But resistance to the decision led to these outcomes. And so prior to Brown, in the 17 states that were operating what we would call dual systems, separate uh, systems for the education of whites and the education of blacks, um, 35 to 50 percent of uh, the educator uh, workforce was black. And today, in 2022, we have no um, state that approaches those percentages. And remember, the dual system states were as far north as Delaware, of course, coming down through D.C., Florida, and all the way over to Texas and Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Um, and the tragic thing about the firing, dismissal, and demotion of these black educators is they were replaced on a near one-to-one basis with whites who were lesser qualified than them. And so uh, you say, well, how did these black educators become more qualified than their white peers during an era of, you know, real racial constriction, meaning prior to Brown? Well, there's an interesting story there. Um, Blacks in the 17 dual system states could attend exclusively black institutions from elementary through high school and college and graduate school. And so after going to a historically black college or university in their state, if their state didn't offer graduate and professional education at an HBCU, those educators had to go to the North or the Midwest to earn graduate degrees, and that's what they did. So they had HBCU um, education and then um, earned master's and doctoral degrees primarily at these nationally prominent universities, New York University, Columbia University, University of Chicago, University of Pennsylvania, The Ohio State University of Michigan and Iowa. And then they did what I call in the book an academic 
migration or pilgrimage to these institutions to earn masters and doctoral degrees, and they returned to the South. They didn't do an exodus. They returned to the South in a migration and taught in these schools. Um, and this is, this is one of the great tragedies. And it's really shocking that 100,000 black educators were just uh, kind of bloodlet out of the system. It's, the, it's the, the most massive brain drain that we've seen in public education. And these individuals were exceptionally academically credentialed and experienced. And I wonder, and ask the question in the book, uh, what, where would our public education uh, system be had we not lost uh, these generations of uh, profoundly prepared educators? Well, and I would go a step further and say, where would race relations in this country be? I absolutely agree with you, and I'll tell you why. Because these individuals, when they did that migration, they went north or west or midwest to earn their degrees. What they experienced was something they had not experienced in the South, um, which was an integrated education. So they were sitting in classrooms and at Columbia University and New York University and the other universities that I named. And so they had some social experience of being in cities that were um, at least racially tolerant, and then they experienced an integrated graduate school or professional school education. They returned to the South, and their Southern white peers had not had that social experience, nor had most um, earned master's and doctoral degrees um, at that time either. Um, in, in one case that I cite at the opening of the book, uh, Dr. Betty Smith is testifying before a U.S. Senate hearing on the displacement of black principles that was held as late as 1971, and then Senator Mondale is leading the questioning, and he asks her um, how many individuals in the state of Georgia who are principals hold doctoral degrees, and she said there are three of us, and she was one of the principals who was um, dismissed and replaced by a white male with far lesser credentials than she. And I also wonder about what black student achievement would be like um, because once black students were integrated into all white, formerly all white segregated schools, they too suffered. Um, discriminatory treatment, um, in some cases uh, hatred or just total disregard by the teachers and principals in their building. And I tell some of those stories which were recorded by and, the National Education Association. And students. And students. And students. And I guess the horror isn't so much the students because, you know, kids get in scuffles all the time, but those of us who've been principals and teachers, we're expected to keep an eye on children and protect them and support them. So um, there were some hostile school environments. And what happens then is that 
the levers of school control, the superintendency, the principalship, the teaching positions themselves, the curriculum um, does not reflect the kind of diversity that we need it to reflect. Um, the U.S. public education system, and I would say our system of colleges and universities, I think are among the best experiments in the world in terms of the types of citizens that enter the schools and the type of citizen we're trying to produce. Remember, the purpose of schools is not to produce workers. The purpose of schools is to produce citizens. It's the one place that all of our state constitutions say um, we will use to produce citizens for democracy, knowledgeable citizens um, who can carry on the work of a democratic government. Leslie, you mentioned something a, a few minutes ago um, about some of these teachers, and I suspect it was in the days shortly before the the Brown decision in 1954, where <clears throat> these black educators would travel to different schools and and you know they would they would get degrees and then they would come back to the areas where they had been teaching to improve those schools mm-hmm. and then after brown and they were all dismissed there was this big gap in the examples set for young successful black people who matriculate and then beat a path out of their neighborhoods as quickly as possible instead of starting their businesses in those neighborhoods or, you know, holding positions in in branches in those neighborhoods. Um, Do you have any sense for, is it as simple as the way I just described it? That (laughs) That the model was gone? I think you did a great job of describing it. So think about 100,000 jobs, this massive brain drain drain from the public school system of of black teachers, affecting 100,000 educators. And at the time, Tom, prior to Brown, uh, um, black principals and teachers were leaders in these communities. And when I say leaders in the community, I don't mean that in kind of some soft um, way, they were, they were advocating for voting rights. They were establishing NAACP chapters, oftentimes um, at risk to their own life. Remember, we're talking about these 17 dual system states and the level of racial hostility at the time. These were community leaders. So when, when they lost their jobs, they also lost income. In today's, um, uh, who would use today's financial accounting or money, it would be about two, a $2.2 billion, B as in boy, billion dollar loss of income. So the community uh, uh, felt that. There's a profound story that I read, read uh, that, is, that I read, that I cite in my book about um, a noted principal. I think he was from Alabama. And of course, all educators tell children 
uh, and young people get your education because it will help you be financially independent in the world and make you a better citizen and all these things. And this man is taken out of his uh, principalship, a very well-credentialed person who had worked for 15 years, and he finds himself working at a local factory, not in a supervisory position, but um, in a regular uh, uh, line position, very menial work. And he encounters some of the students who um, he had taught who had dropped out of high school. And um, the story I recount is about his interaction with them, that how could he any longer prove to them that education would mean something in terms of their independence, in terms of being a contributing citizen, in terms of their financial stability, when he was right alongside them in the most menial um, uh, factory position. So the model of intellectual authority was also a model of leadership about the value of education, that you could make it in this racially constricted circumstance, you could you could not make it out of your community, but that you could make it in terms of being a contributing member of your community, um, the black community and the community beyond the black community. So that was lost. The other thing that was lost for black students was someone who could help them negotiate um, a racial, a, a, a racist society by giving them strategies. You know, do this, say this, you know, work this way. Those strategies were needed by students um, and still are needed by students. So what happens after Brown by the, because of the orchestrated brain drain and loss of black teachers is that integrated, and I'm using that term in quotation marks, integrated schools become white spaces, predominantly white principals, teachers, a curriculum that's white in terms of imagery and content um, and authorship. And what gets left on the roadside um, dead is any uh, you know, true reference to black intellectual excellence um, or integration of content around black history um, and cultural achievements in the curriculum. And this is, I think, a great tragedy. So, you know, we sit here in 2022 and some of you say, well, why do we want to talk about this now? It's a history that we're still living with. It's a history that's not dead. And I think um, it's hard to live with a history you don't know you're living with. And that's one of the motivations for sharing this history in Jim Crow's Pink Slip. And, and it's uh, sadly a history that we don't know. And, and I'm not just talking about young people of color learning their own history, but it isn't just their history. You're exactly right. It's, it's, it's an American story. And the, the response that I receive from audiences, black and white and Latinx and other, is, oh, my gosh, I didn't know. The response is not a hostile response. It's like, how could I not know this? And 
what do we do about it now? Those are the two responses that I receive from audiences. There was a, a musician uh, friend of mine who passed away a few years ago. He was a generation ahead of me, but he told me the story of, of his his father. He He grew up in Michigan, but in the northern part of Michigan and a very rural part of Michigan, and his father went through school and became an engineer. And then, like people all over the country, and this would have probably been sometime in the 50s, um, he was attracted to Flint for a job in the auto plants Mm -hmm. where he was summarily hired as a janitor. Mm -hmm. You know, Tom, we've been talking a lot about qualifications uh, recently um, with the uh, appointment of our most recent Supreme Court Justice. And I think about these stories. The story I'm telling is one, the story your friend told you about his father is another. But here you have 100,000 black educators across 17 states who are still, though they are exceptionally credentialed with graduate degrees from some of the nation's most prominent institutions at the time and still now. And yet they were still captured by this arc of what I would say race madness and were placed on a one-to-one basis, nearly a one-to-one basis across the 17 states by lesser qualified whites. And and this isn't just me saying this. This is the record of Senate hearings documenting this atrocity. It's an an important story that needs to be told and explored in depth. Um, But in the wake of having had our country's first black president, Barack Obama, and, of course, um, now I get confused with, is it Katanji Brown-Jackson? Yes. Well, Justice Jackson said something in her confirmation hearing um, about the number of generations it took her family to have someone sitting on the Supreme Court. And it was it was really quite a powerful statement, if you remember that, that quote. I, I don't remember it exactly, and I don't want to butcher it. But, um, <laughs> but I thought it was, you know, a, a really important thing. And that raises the question, and we just have a couple minutes left, um, mm-hmm. is what... What are the steps that have been taken? We talked about busing, and I didn't even mention affirmative action. But what are some of the steps and the implementations that have changed things to the point where where we have these kinds of achievements happening now? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I end the book with a series of recommendations for policy and practice and Excellent. Excellent. Um, talk about um, the great value of us continuing as a nation to work toward diversifying our teaching force and our principalships and superintendencies to have more people of diverse backgrounds represented in those positions. Because I think that diversity, we know this from the studies in corporate America that that diversity has real outcomes in terms of productivity for systems. And so 
I think the best thing that we can do at this juncture is to frame the history, know the history, and then um, continue, continue our work to diversify teaching forces in earnest, mindful that this is the history that led us here in the first place. Well, Leslie, I appreciate you sharing your scholarship and expertise with me and the listeners uh, so much. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future, and, and of course, what we've been talking about in, I would say, the book, Jim Crow's Pink Slip, The Untold Story of Black Principal and Teacher Leadership is a great place to start. But do you have a website you'd like to share? I do, and thank you. Um, LeslieTFenwick.com Well, that's easy. (laughs) That's where you can find out more. And, of course, uh, Harvard Ed Press has the information about the book, um, as does Amazon, which which I read yesterday is the number one new release in education history. That made me feel pretty good. I would think. But people want to know the story. As it should, as it should. Well, Leslie, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and an honor talking with you, and keep up the good work. Um, thank you for letting me share this story. Take care. Once again, that was uh, Leslie Fenwick, author of Jim Crow's Pink Slip, and we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. I have to lay low for a while, so I'll be staying here inside. It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride We'll see you on the other side It's not the same without you here I hold on to this phone so tight Whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello! I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan with Blood Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Now, I'll tell you this, this story. This is a game that we played when we were, when we were kids, and it's called... Buck Buck. We played it in Philadelphia. Buck Buck. Now, you people out here in the West Coast probably know nothing about it. Uh, in New York, it's called Johnny on the Pony and other things. It's where five, uh, five kids line up, you see, and they bend over. They're in a straight line. They bend over, and one kid grabs a fence or a wall or a pole, holds on to that. The next kid puts his right arm around his waist, you see, bends over, tucks his head under, and you got five guys lined up exactly like that. <laughs> So they all look like a long horse. Now, the object of the game is that one at a time, one by one, kids come running up and they say, Buck, buck, number one, come in! They run up, leap in the air, and they land on the horse. And they keep going, bam, 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 until they collapse the horse, you see. Now, that's the object of the game. Then you count how many kids you held and you, you go back and forth, you see. Now, we had the champion buck, buck team of the world. When I tell you we played buck-buck, there was nobody that whipped us anywhere, man. And you can tell kids that play a lot of buck-buck because they're built like this, you see. And their legs are only four inches long. That's all they have because they've been crushed so much. So we're around there practicing buck-buck number five. Landing on each other. Some kids come down from the rough part of town. And they're really tough, man. They got toothpicks on the side of their mouth. And a hat on sideways, and he got the pants on backwards, you know, just rebelling against everything, you know. And he said, Listen, we're here, you're supposed to be so tough, we challenge you to the Buck Buck Championship of the World. So he said, All right. So I line up, turkeys. So we line up, five of us. Whack! They start sending kids down. Buck Buck number one, come in! feel pretty heavy, man. We check them out. Guys have rocks in their pockets to make them way heavier, you know. And buck, buck number two. Now they get up to 300 and it's really heavy. Buck, buck, 300, come in. Now they're on top of us, piled all the way up to the sky and they're rocking back and forth. Hey, whoa, whoa. Hold on, Harold. I can't do it no more, guys. Come on, hold on. Buck, buck, 400, come in. We collapse. All right, how many did you hold? We held 400 of your guys. Well, that was pretty good. But we usually hold around 600. <laughs> All right, we line up. They line up. Send the first kid down, old weird Harold. All right, Harold. Buck, buck, number one, come in. <laughs> These guys are really cool. What was that? A mosquito? <laughs> you guys don't have no weight. Come on, let's go. Buck, buck, number two, come in. I landed. A piece of paper. Somebody threw a piece of paper on top of me. Buck, buck, number three. That was nothing. Four. Five. We got the championship. All right, bring out your last man, you turkeys. Come on, bring him out. Come on out. Fat Albert. Fat Albert was the baddest buck, buck breaker in the world. And he loved to hear us call his name. Fat Albert weighed 2,000 pounds. And he kicked the door to his house open. And you could hear him say, hey, hey. We built a little ramp for him to walk down so he could build up speed because he couldn't hardly run fast. And he was coming, hey, hey. And the ground was trembling. 
Trees falling over. Buildings losing pieces of brick. Parents taking kids off the street. Hey, hey, hey. And these guys are the What's the ground doing? Shake it, man. How come the ground shaking? So that's Fat Albert coming for you. Hey, hey, hey. And he turned the corner. They saw one leg. What is that? So that's Fat Albert. Hey, hey, hey. And they stood up. We give. He ain't falling on us. Now, I told you that story to tell you this one. Not now. Guys, guys in my neighborhood went to great lengths to scare anybody. Because it's a great thing when you scare somebody. They lose their cool completely. That's the only time when a human being is really himself. I mean, because if you scare somebody good, they just, the legs shoot out, the hair stands up, the eyes bug out, and they say, blah, blah. Yeah. See? And then you laugh. Ah, 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 ah. That was really funny, man. You got so scared. Ah. So, guys found this statue, stole it, really. A statue of Frankenstein, five feet, eight inches tall, in color of the monster. Frankenstein monster. Ooh. They take it home, there's only three of them, take it home, they take it into an apartment building, put it up on the third floor landing, you see. Now they take out all the lights in the hallway, put in a pink one right by the monster statue. One kid gets behind it, they send another one out in the street, he calls a kid. They come running up, he passes the kid with the statue, taps him, kid with the statue leans it. Kid that doesn't know anything about it turns around and kills himself running out of the building. You see, this is called fun. Because then you laugh at the guy, boy, you were really scared, Red. You fell 12 flights of stairs. That was really funny. So, I'm coming home from the store about 8.30. No, I always have my music with me. I always have to hum my music because monsters cannot attack you if you have your music with you. Hey, cops! What? Come on over, man. You should see it. Herman's getting a beating. Let's go watch it. Herman? Yeah, I love to see Herman getting a beating. And I took man, I... And I'm chasing after this guy. I can't wait, man, to see Herman getting the beat because I don't like Herman anyway. La, 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 la. And he goes up the second flight and says, Wait for me, man, wait for me. Don't go so fast. And he makes that turn around the third, and I make the turn, and the guy takes a step. Out. I never touched one step. Ran two miles before I realized what had happened. When I turned around, they were right behind me laughing. Man, God's rolling, kicking the feet up in the air on the back. It was really funny, boy. You were really cool, man. You just lost everything. Your hair was standing up and everything. That ain't funny, man. You can kill somebody like that. Suppose somebody wouldn't look at that statue and your heart just stopped pumping right away. Or the guy would have just fallen down some stairs and hurt himself. That ain't funny. Yeah, but God, you just see yourself. It was really funny, man. You just went, true. Didn't even touch one step, man. It's really cool. I'm telling you. Listen, guys, now you gotta get somebody. Yeah, that's right.
Get up in the hallway. Get the statues up. Come on, we're going to get somebody. I'm going to scare somebody now, boy. It's going to just be me, I tell you that. I get somebody killed around here. It'll really be funny because when they leave that statue on the other hall, that'll be it for them. And I'm waiting outside. Is the thing up? Yeah, okay. Here we go. And wait, somebody's got to come sooner or later. I'm going to get somebody. And I hear off in the distance. Hey! Fat Albert. Hey! I said, hey, Fat Albert, come here, man. You should see Herman. He's getting a beating. I like to see Herman get a beating. Now, Fat Albert is not too fat, see? So I run up and I grab my arm. Come on, Albert, hurry up. And I start hitting him behind the back. Hurry up, man. Did you see it before it's over? We go up to the second flight. I start laughing because I know what it is. And turn around. Come on, Albert. We get up to the third flight. And the guy's there. Oh. I forgot I was behind him. They, uh, they took me to the hospital and they put me in a bed beside a wino who was run over by two kids. And we both agreed that uh, frightened children are really uh, hard to get along with. I never had a guy dance on me so long. Uh, he was so scared he couldn't even get a hey, hey. He was and just dancing right on me forever. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. have been nothing if not vague well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell there is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. 
It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.